Hello everyone tuning in from everywhere around the world and welcome to IFPRI's policy seminar on the new nutrition reality, time to re recognize and tackle the double burden of malnutrition. My name is Marie Ruel, I am director of the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division at IFPRI and I'll be the moderator for what promises to be an exciting seminar today. We have a very packed agenda with several bright stars in nutrition, so I will move us right along to our first speaker, Dr. Francesco Branca, who will make some introductory remarks. Francesco is director of the Department of Nutrition for Health and Development at the World Health Organization. Francesco, the floor, or rather the screen is yours. Good day to all. Thank you, Marie. And uh, thanks to the International Food Policy Research Institute uh, for hosting this seminar today. Optimal nutrition is critical to both population health and sustainable development. In 2019, approximately 690 million adults worldwide were food insecure, while almost 2 billion were overweight. An estimated 38 million children under the age of five years were overweight or obese, while 144 million were chronically undernourished. This coexistence of multiple forms of malnutrition is known as the double burden of malnutrition and represents an important focus for intervention. The double burden of malnutrition is characterized by the coexistence of undernutrition and micronutrient deficiencies along with overweight and obesity or nutrition-related non-communicable diseases. The relationship between undernutrition and overweight and obesity is more than a, simply a temporal coexistence. The double burden can exist in parallel or at separate times throughout the life course. It can also occur at the individual household or population level. Drivers of this double burden of malnutrition are varied and often insidious. They include biological, environmental, social, and behavioral factors. Undernutrition early in a child life or affecting their mother before or during pregnancy may predispose to overweight later in the child's life. Rapid weight gain in early life can predispose to overweight and obesity in adulthood. Those influences known as the social determinants or the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age have a big impact on the nutrition status and opportunities for individuals and populations. The globalization of unhealthy behaviors is a major challenge to nutrition worldwide, but it's also a profound opportunity for intervention. Malnutrition in all its forms threatens the achievement of key global health and development goals, necessitating urgent act attention and action. With many countries facing complex and overlapping nutrition challenges, there is a need to identify and communicate actions that synergistically address undernutrition, overweight, obesity, and non-communicable diseases. Or to be clear and understand the impact pathways of solid interventions. Convened by WHO and The Lancet, a four-paper series on the double burden of malnutrition has provided an innovative nutrition lens 
and highlighted the urgent need for bridging maternal and child nutrition, early nutrition, non-communicable diseases and obesity through epidemiological, economic, biological and policy analysis. You will hear the highlights of the four papers in today's seminar. At the end of 2020, the achievement of the 2025 and 2030 global nutrition targets seem even more at stake. A combination of the economic crisis and the disruption of the health and food system generated by the COVID-19 pandemic is going to overturn the progress made in the last years. At the end of 2020, there probably will be over 100 million additional people with food insecurity and an additional 7 million children under five with moderate or severe wasting. Similar effects can be expected for stunting and women's anemia, while overweight among school-age children seem to have increased. The UN Decade of Action on Nutrition and the Sustainable Development Goals shifted the focus from predominantly undernutrition or single sides of malnutrition to all forms of malnutrition. While necessary and urgent, this new framing risks strategic and operational dilution for which the double burden can counterbalance. This series of papers is also reflects the new nutrition reality where no country is immune for malnutrition and many countries face multiple burdens at both extremes of malnutrition. The series is complemented by a nutrition manifesto for the new nutrition reality. The manifesto calls for a broadened community of nutrition stakeholders to speak a shared language, work in mutually reinforcing and interconnected ways, and act on a global scale. At the same time, the nutrition manifesto recognizes the damage from incompatible partnerships with stakeholders whose behaviors run counter to human or planetary health and reiterates the need for food policy development processes to be firewalled from vested interests. A new global nutrition movement is emerging that needs to take the lead in demanding food systems transformation locally, regionally, and globally. I trust this is materializing during the preparation of the food system and the Nutrition for Growth Summits in 2021. I am confident that we will collectively support this emerging global movement and build back better a world where the double burden of malnutrition will be a hallmark in of the past. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francesco, uh, especially for this call for action to pursue our efforts to work on improving nutrition through these difficult times. Um, before I introduce the next speaker, I would like to remind everyone that we would like to hear from you. And uh, so if you want to participate in our Q&A session, which will follow the discussant's remarks, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Thank you so much. Um, so we now have uh, four presenters who will present uh, for the four papers of the Lancet series. Our first presenter is Dr. Barry Popkin, who is W.R. Kennan Jr. Distinguished Professor of Nutrition, Department of Nutrition at the Gillings School of Global Public Health, University of North Carolina. 
uh, I assume that most of you know or have heard of, of Barry, and so we look forward to hearing your presentation, Barry. Thank you. Uh, next slide, please. So the double burden of malnutrition defined by the confluence in a country, in a neighborhood or community, or even in a household really reflects a long understanding of how we measure undernutrition and how we measure overweight and obesity. We have data at the global level I present, and then we have for most of the low and middle income countries across the world, uh, demographic and health surveys, which I'll also present in this uh, and use for this measurement. The severe levels of double burden of malnutrition are defined by WHO and UNICEF World Bank criteria for being severe countries uh, for undernutrition. For overnutrition, we're using three levels of overweight and obesity at the 20% prevalence, 30% prevalence, and 40. And what you can see in this first slide is that countries shifted from moderate income countries having the high levels of double burden in the 1990s. And if you look today, South Asia, Indonesia and parts of Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa are really where the countries with the high levels of the double burden exist today. Next slide. So what I want to describe is how this has changed and the country nature uh, of this has really shifted. In really in the 1990s, it was moderate and higher income, low income countries who faced this problem, predominantly moderate. But as you can see from this slide, you can see that the shift has been using four income quartiles from the bottom, number one, up to the top, that those higher income countries have no longer have the double burden. They're really countries that have dealt with stunting to some extent, but in contrast to overweight and obesity are dominating. In these slides, you'll see that the double burden is now highest in low income countries across and among, among those low and middle income countries, the very lowest income in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Indonesia, and a couple others in Asia. Uh, next slide. This slide shows this in a, another graphic way to see again at all levels of overweight going along with severe levels of undernutrition that the countries that ended the double burden are really the higher income quartiles and the bottom per capita income quartiles really represent now the burden of this problem. So that we really are seeing this as a problem of the poorest countries across the globe. And that's really because no country across the globe now has less than 20% overweight and obesity and the levels of overweight and obesity are growing quite rapidly. Next slide. So here I wanted to show, because it's very important to understand that the overweight and obesity is still a problem 
depending on the country of the higher income countries, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia. But in East Asia, Indonesia, China, uh, Central Asia, and most of Latin America, this is now a problem of, of lower income households have the highest levels of overweight and obesity and the growth is quite significant. Uh, these represent here annualized growth figures in terms of percentage points per year. And you can see the shift that's going on and has still not reached, but will reach over the next several decades, South Asia and Southeast Sub-Saharan Africa. Next slide. So these shifting conditions from the low income to the high income, again, you can see here and in a different way. And you can see that there are a couple Latin American countries as well as Cambodia and Vietnam that also face this issue in Asia and Latin America. And then you see South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa where really this problem is still a problem of of the higher income relative to lower income. But that again will change. We're seeing it shift across the globe slowly. And we predict over the next two decades, this will become a problem of, of the poor in all countries. They'll have the higher burden of overweight. Next slide. So these changes in the double burden uh, are very much related to both economic growth, which has certainly impacted significantly, wasting, stunting, and even in adult women, thinness, uh, reduced at the same time through all the technological changes, physical activity, and has increased our purchasing power, which increasingly is going for ultra-processed, less healthy foods. Uh, food marketing has certainly had a lot to do with that, as well as modern retailing, reaching all corners of the world today. Uh, and urbanization and the increasing employment of women are some of the factors that we don't go into here in depth, but are critical drivers behind the shifting burden of undernutrition and overnutrition and the double burden across the world. Next slide. Lastly, uh, why have we seen these increases in overweight? Well, as I mentioned, technological changes have affected everybody in the world across work, home production, work in the household, cooking, cleaning, uh, get it, gathering water, uh, electricity, all these uh, different technologies have truly been impacted. Uh, leisure activities, transportation have been reduced significantly and we aren't gonna be able to go back on this. At the same time, uh, the diet drivers are really continuing and these become the critical factor for dealing with the double burden, both stunting and overweight and obesity. Um, economic growth again. Uh, one of the critical issues that we face in the future is how to reduce the consumption of ultra-processed foods. These have begun to dominate across all low and middle income countries. You won't go to a village, you won't go anywhere and not find people selling be it in a store, a store of some sort, or in a cart, or in some other way, ultra-processed foods and beverages. They're ready to eat, ready to heat, 
and they become a critical growth factor for the food sector and a major cause of increasing of certainly overweight and obesity and to some extent possibly for undernutrition. Um, we have countries like Nepal where we find 25% of calories for infants come from ultra processed foods. This indeed is a problem we have to worry about for all forms of malnutrition in the future. Um, and there are effective policies to address these that Karina Hawks will be talking about later. Next slide. Next slide. So in summary, undernutrition's declining while overweight is increasing. The, in Sub-Saharan Africa, they do that at about the same rate, but in most countries in the world, overweight is increasing faster, but under stunting in particular has come from very high levels of 30 to 50%, and it's going down uh, across the globe slowly and steadily, and we need to keep focusing on that for certain. But while stunting is highly prevalent, overweight has really reached the globe in ways that's quite astounding, uh, where you don't find a country without 20%. But again, I must remind you of 126 low and middle income countries in our world, 38% face the high levels of double burden of malnutrition that we define as severe or very high. So, and lastly, remember that it's shifting toward the poorest countries. These are the countries in which we need to focus most in terms of our double duty action. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much, Barry. This is really a very good way to set the, the stage for Okay, sorry, uh, it looks like I was muted. Um, so yes, thank you, Barry, for setting the stage for this uh, excellent, uh, well, for your excellent presentation that sets the stage for the following presentations. It, it is it's really important for us to understand the magnitude of the problem and its evolution over time. We know that double burden of malnutrition ex has existed for some time, but it really is getting out of control. And also thank you for the key messages and, and for um, uh, making everything on time and so clear. Um, our second present presenter is Professor, Professor Jonathan Wells, uh, who is Professor of Anthropology and Pediatric Nutrition at University College London Institute of Child Health. Jonathan, the screen is yours. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the organizers for the chance to make this presentation on behalf of the co-authors of this paper. Next slide, please. So when the double burden of malnutrition was first reported, it was described at the level of countries and then at the level of communities uh, and then at the level of individual households, for example, where an overweight mother might be living with a child who's undernourished or stunted. But as the speed of nutrition transition has increased, what we're increasingly seeing is that those undernourished children may themselves grow up to become overweight adults. And that means we also need to pay attention to the biology of the double burden of malnutrition. Next slide. 
So we've long known that there are intergenerational cycles of malnutrition. For example, we know that mothers who are undernourished have an increased risk of having children who themselves are prone to undernutrition. And we know that the same thing applies to overweight, where overweight mothers may be likely to have children who themselves develop overweight. Next slide, please. But what happens with rapid nutrition transition is that individuals transition between these two cycles within their life course. And that life course transition is strongly associated with an increased risk of various forms of disease. Next slide. Now, one of the strongest examples of how the life course exposure to the double burden is associated with disease is apparent for non-communicable diseases such as type 2 diabetes. This slide shows data from the New Delhi cohort in India. Along the front of the graph, you can see tertiles of body mass index at two years of age. And up the right-hand side of the graph, you can see adult BMI in the same individuals. And what we're looking at is the odds ratio of uh, developing diabetes or glucose intolerance. And it's very easy to see on this graph that the highest risk of diabetes occurs in those who are thin in early life and overweight in adulthood. And this pattern of disease is also found for many other uh, outcomes such as hypertension, stroke, and cardiovascular disease. Next slide, please. Now, there are a number of different biological pathways that underlie these life course trajectories to increased disease risk. We know that exposure to malnutrition in early life is associated with effects on organ size, structure, and function, with epigenetic changes in gene expression, with changes in markers of cellular health, such as the condition of the telomeres, and with maturation of the gut microbiome. And what's particularly important is that all of these biological systems uh, pick up effects whether the mother is either undernourished or overweight. Next slide, please. But even more importantly, these early changes in biology that can happen in response to maternal malnutrition then shape how that individual will respond to future manifestations of malnutrition later in the life course. For example, if they become overweight or develop obesity. And effectively what that means is that obesity is more toxic for health amongst those who also were exposed to undernutrition early in the life course. Next slide, please. Now this uh, diagram looks very complex, but what I'd like you to focus on is the gray boxes in the middle. And each of these gray boxes refers to different forms of ill health, such as inflammation, gut dysbiosis, fetopelvic disproportion, or cardiometabolic diseases. And all you really need to focus on here is how each of these gray boxes has arrows coming in from both of the sides of the diagram. In other words, the risk of these diseases is shaped both by aspects of undernutrition, particularly early life, and also by uh, overweight. And once we see this, it's, it becomes clearer to understand why the double burden of malnutrition is really driving the global burden of non-communicable diseases. Next slide, please. Now we can see this in more detail um, by looking at three birth cohorts which have been steered by Professor Yajnik, who's the co-author on this paper, uh, which were set up in and around the city of Pune in India. Now until recently, all the population was exposed uh, to energy scarcity, micronutrient deficiencies, and a high burden of infectious disease. But what's happened is that different parts of the population have been exposed in different ways to uh, uh, economic uh, development and nutrition transition. And the intergenerational effects in these cohorts show the interaction between parental phenotype 
and exposure uh, to uh, nutrition transition. So starting with the rural cohort at the bottom where parental BMI is quite low, 18 for mothers and 20 for fathers, over half of the offspring in this birth cohort had low birth weight. By 19 years of age, none of those offspring had become overweight, and yet 28% had still developed pre-diabetes. And amongst those who themselves had become mothers, 15 had developed gestational diabetes. Next slide, please. In an urban cohort, the parents who had slightly higher BMI of 20 or 24 kilograms per meter squared, Still, one third of the offspring were born low birth weight, but at 20 years of age, a fifth of those offspring had gone on to become overweight or had obesity, 20% had prediabetes, and 5% had diabetes. And finally, in another urban cohort where all the mothers were recruited with gestational diabetes, you can see that parental BMI was even higher. Now, only a quarter of the offspring were born with low birth weight, but 11% of the offspring were born with large for gestational age, and at 15 years, 24%, roughly a quarter of their offspring had become overweight or obese, 37% had prediabetes and 5% had diabetes. So this shows really strongly that exposure to the nutrition transition bears the imprint of parental phenotype in the previous generation. Next slide, please. Now I've talked a little bit about non-communicable diseases such as diabetes, stroke, hypertension and heart disease. But the double burden also has implications for other aspects of health. Relative to normal patterns of growth and development, we now know that mothers who experience stunting in early life are likely to develop smaller dimensions of the obstetric pelvis. But if they also develop overweight or obesity by adulthood, they are more likely to give birth to a larger baby. And that creates the potential for problems with childbirth, where a larger baby has a smaller pelvis through which to exit. Next slide, please. Now we don't have a lot of data at the moment on the prevalence of obstructive labor, but what we do have is data on the prevalence of cesarean section. All of these graphs present the odds ratios for a mother having a cesarean section relative to a control group of mothers who have both normal height and normal BMI. And it's easy to see that on the left, if the mother is normal BMI but short, on average in most countries, there is an increased risk of cesarean section. If the mother is overweight as well as being short, that risk increases. And finally, if the mother is both short and has obesity, then the risk is increased further. Now, we know that in many countries there are excess rates of cesarean section, but I think we're starting to understand that the double burden of malnutrition may be one factor contributing to high rates of cesareans. Next slide, please. Another aspect of uh, biology and health that it, uh, picks up an imprint of the double burden is breastfeeding. Now we know that breastfeeding is one of the most important ways uh, that we can give uh, infants a healthy uh, start in relation to their growth and development. But we also now know that all forms of malnutrition in the mother, whether that's undernutrition, obesity or diabetes, can undermine breastfeeding and reduce those benefits. And this gives a biological rationale for some of the policies that you're about to hear in a moment, in that if we can promote better maternal health, we can benefit mothers themselves, but also improve nutritional status in the next generation. Next slide, please. Now, we used to think that the driving factors for undernutrition and overweight were very different, but increasingly we're realizing that actually they have many driving factors in common. And these include different forms of malnutrition in early life, gender inequality, exposure to the commercial determinants of health, and unhealthy diets. Next slide, please. 
Now, in the last year, we've seen major challenges to nutrition through the COVID-19 pandemic and associated lockdowns. I think we're still gaining data about exactly what's happening, but we have got some insights from an online survey that we've been running in the UK. We found that lockdowns have been associated with increased psychosocial stress among mothers, often a reduction in household income, reduced levels of family contact and reduced professional support for infant feeding, alongside reduced access to green space and lower opportunities for physical activity. In many cases, there's been dietary change, uh, great increasing exposure to the commercial determinants of health. And we also know that there are certain groups of mothers who are particularly vulnerable to these influences. And what we've seen in the survey is that some mothers have reported excess weight gain during these conditions, and they've also reported challenges to the establishment of breastfeeding, and many have had to stop breastfeeding earlier than they would have liked to. Next slide, please. So to mitigate the uh, double burden of malnutrition, we need major changes in food systems, but also in many aspects of the organization of society supported by public health uh, interventions. But we also need to remember that human biology is connected to the biology of many other species. And so we need changes in these food systems that are also optimal for planetary health. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jonathan. This is really a very important presentation in the sense that it does show that all forms of malnutrition are related, interrelated biologically, and that we can't just work on one form of malnutrition to uh, try to tackle the problem. We really have to address all of them at the same time, and especially starting with early life. Um, so thanks again for a really fascinating presentation. Our third speaker is Professor Corinna Hawkes, Director of the Center for Food Policy at City University London, and she will talk about double duty actions. A reminder, put your questions in the chat, and if you, uh, if you want to indicate who your question is directed to, uh, this will also be useful when we take the question and answer. Um, so, Corinna, the floor or the screen is yours. Thanks very much, Marie, and thanks very much for the invitation to present at this uh, session today. And uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon to all of those of you on the, on the webinar. Thank you very much for joining. So I'm going to take us through the paper that uh, I contributed to the series along with uh, my uh, shared lead author, Marie, and, uh, and other authors as well. I'm, I'm giving this presentation on their behalf um, about the double duty action approach as a new way to tackle the double burden of nutrition. So if I could go to the next slide, what do I mean by a double duty action? What we're talking about here are interventions, programs and policies that simultaneously prevent or reduce the risk of both nutritional deficiencies that lead to underweight, wasting, stunting or micronutrient deficiencies and problems of obesity or diet related non-communicable diseases. So in other words, they're actions that are efficient in the sense that they impact on the different sides of the double burden, rather than just trying to tackle one or the other, they try and tackle both at the same time with both with the, with the same action. And that makes them very different 
to strategies which aim to tackle obesity on the, on the one hand, and then another strategy that aims, or another action, another set of actions that aims to tackle undernutrition. The idea is to do it in synergy. On the next slide, uh, I um, set out three interlinked reasons why double duty makes sense, as opposed to just having separate strategies for each side of the double burden. The shared drivers, efficiency and opportunity, and all of these are linked. So on the next slide, I set out two very basic shared drivers for different forms of malnutrition. The first Jonathan has just spoken about uh, in talking about the biology, which is that early nutrition has implications for both obesity and for forms of undernutrition. The links between early growth and development and onset of NCDs in particular that Jonathan set out means that action that promotes healthy growth in early life will be de facto a double duty action. So any action designed to support and promote breastfeeding, for example, will be a double duty action because breastfeeding brings benefits for undernutrition and for um, obesity and NCDs. A second shared driver is diet. What we eat influences all forms of malnutrition. And that means if, that, if someone is eating a healthy diet, while it's not sufficient, a healthy diet will be protective against all forms of nutritional risk. Thus actions that promote healthy diets will become double duty actions. So both early nutrition and diets are shared drivers of all forms of malnutrition. And that means, as I show on the next slide, that we can create efficiencies and opportunities by leveraging those, those shared drivers. And at the moment, it's very, very clear why this is in the context of COVID-19. We know, and Barry pointed this out, that death and complications from COVID-19 are heightened uh, for people affected by overweight and obesity. And we also know that undernutrition is predicted to rise as a result of COVID-19. So it's far more efficient to, to try and identify actions that both reduce the risk of the growth of undernutrition in the future, but also reduce the risk of obesity, which will then reduce the problems that are caused by COVID-19. It simply makes sense to spend the money that we have to allocate the resources that we have to actions that reduce both of those risks. And the third reason is that there were opportunities to do so because there were platforms under which, uh, for which under, uh, actions designed to tackle undernutrition can be delivered, which also can be used to reduce the risk of obesity, health systems, social protection systems, education systems, and food systems. And on the next slide, I make the point that unfortunately, these opportunities, these efficiencies, these shared drivers have not been leveraged in the way that would be optimal. The Green Revolution, for example, while all the benefits it had, didn't consider um, 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 different forms, it only considered uh, what is one form of uh, undernutrition, didn't consider micronutrient deficiencies and didn't consider issues around um, obesity. Strategies that countries have taken, such as Brazil, which have been absolutely fantastic in so many ways, also didn't leverage the uh, possibility 
of, of creating healthy diets more broadly, rather focusing on tackling the sufficiency of food. And it's the same with uh, the commercial sector as well. This is clearly on the right hand side, not a program or a policy, but it advances the idea that we can tackle uh, different forms of malnutrition. Uh, we don't need to be thinking about obesity when we're thinking about different uh, other forms of undernutrition, in this case, micronutrient deficiency. So in other words, the idea is, is that as long as we're tracking micronutrient deficiencies or stunting, we don't need to worry about the foods associated with obesity. I think the data that Barry showed suggests that we do. And it's the same in, in, for the efficiency and opportunity as well, as we see on the next slide, where financing has largely gone for undernutrition and focused on actions that are particular to undernutrition and don't consider obesity. So it doesn't create the opportunities for that efficiency. And nor are opportunities of shared platforms being taken. This is an example of an action designed to tackle food insecurity and people not having enough food in the context of COVID-19, where many of the efforts that we've seen, the laudable efforts designed to make sure that people have enough food, haven't really considered the quality of that food. And this is one uh, example from the NCD Alliance compilation. So the opportunities that an action is being taken to tackle uh, poor nutrition then is not leveraged in the optimal way that it could be. So on the next slide, I show why is, why is it so important to take double duty actions now? I mentioned COVID-19 specifically. COVID-19 tells us that we must tackle under, undernutrition and we must tackle obesity. Both are absolutely vital. But, and, and, and in reacting to COVID-19, we have the opportunity to learn from the past when undernutrition programs actually raised the risk of obesity. And we show in the paper some examples from these, uh, from these countries here. And on the next slide, just very quickly, to show that uh, one example, which is uh, from Mexico, which is a pioneer conditional cash transfer program, which evidence shows has had many, many positive impacts, indicating that con conditional cash transfer programs are extremely positive. However, this program was not designed also to tackle obesity and had the impact of increasing maternal overweight. This other example from Guatemala, sorry, from Egypt, is another on the next slide is another example where we see again a program which was designed to help tackle um, the, um, hunger actually had negative impacts across the board it, it led to increases of child stunting and on um, and on women's bmi so moving on to the next slide what we can see here is that there were these opportunities for double duty actions to take a different approach to be delivered through these shared platforms, leverage these interconnected drivers and have double impact on both sides of the double burden and therefore lower the risk of all forms of malnutrition. So to end with a couple of examples, I already mentioned the cash transfer programs and on the next slide, the example is given 
of social safety nets that if we're to redesign social net so social safety nets to include include counseling on nutrition and healthy diets and health education we provide the opportunity for making sure that people have enough money to buy food but ensuring that food is healthier and on the next slide to show an example from an educational platform where redesigning school feeding programs to offer meals that both meet children's energy needs but also uh, protect against unhealthy food, snacks and beverages being sold in and, around, uh, in and around schools. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Corinna. This is uh, again, a really good introduction to uh, part of the solution that we're trying to see with the multiple burdens of malnutrition and how to address them simultaneously or with complementary actions. Um, our fourth speaker is Dr. Rachel Nugent, who is Vice President and Director, Center for Global Non-Communicable Diseases, RTI, International and Associate Affiliate Professor of Global Health at the University of Washington. Um, Rachel will be talking to us about uh, some economic aspects and, and maybe some of the financial synergies of, of, uh, of potential financial synergies of double duty action. And the floor is yours, Rachel. Thank you, Marie. And thank you very much to, as the slides come up, thank you. Thank you to IFPRI and thank you to WHO and to The Lancet for the opportunity to develop this paper and to present it here. I wanna acknowledge my co-authors, Carol Levin, Brian Hutchinson and Jessica Hale. And uh, in, in a brief few moments, I want to tell you what we've done to try to inform us all about the economic effects of the double burden of malnutrition and the potential from an economic point of view to justify double duty interventions, many of which uh, Corinna has just described to you. Yes, it's very um, logical that when we see the uh, array of countries that are experiencing the double burden of malnutrition that Barry has told us about, and it's intuitive when we see the biological pathways that Jonathan has described to us in, in uh, lovely detail, that we see the impacts of poor nutrition across the life cycle. And then we see the opportunities for intervening and that we are doing to address undernutrition and also trying to do to address the growing burden of obesity, it's logical and intuitive that we should be able to justify from an economic point of view uh, that we uh, address malnutrition in all its forms using double duty interventions. But intuition and logic uh, don't always uh, come together and support an economic case. So um, Francesco and, and the Lancet challenged us to demonstrate that a case could be made from an economic point of view. And that's something that certainly uh, funders and program managers and countries would expect and would be justified in expecting. So to sort of cut to the bottom line, uh, next slide, please. We attempted to do two things with this paper. We wanted to look at existing economic models to see what they could offer in terms of the double burden of malnutrition can we assess the, the costs of the double burden uh, using existing models? And we found that there aren't any existing models that incorporate both undernutrition and obesity outcomes that have common outcomes that we could use to say, okay, yes, now we, we can measure the economic impacts here in this, with this one model. So we describe in the paper a number of models and 
what they do give us. But in, in short, the economic approach to looking at uh, undernutrition and the impacts of that look at very different outcomes than those models that look at the economic impacts of obesity. And I'll describe that just a little bit. And then secondly, we were a little bit ambitious here. We wanted to look at the potential to assess the costs and benefits of a, of a double duty intervention, as, as Corinna has described, uh, using an example that we all felt uh, would uh, be able to demonstrate the benefits. Next slide, please. So this is a, a short, a little schematic taken from the paper. I'm gonna just walk you through it briefly to, to describe the methodology that we used. We looked across the array of interventions that we thought, we didn't have the benefit of Corinna's and Marie's paper in hand when we started. So we looked across a lot of different uh, literature and references and of course consulted with uh, our colleagues here about what would be a good example of a program that we could assess from an economic point of view for its double duty benefits. And we came up with school feeding programs. They're widespread, they're widely supported, uh, they are well evidenced, uh, and they clearly have the potential to affect both undernutrition and overweight and obesity. So that was perhaps maybe the easiest step that we took. We also wanted to, um, and, and to note that we know that a, an intervention can't be cost-effective if it's not effective. So we had good effectiveness evidence and we wanted to kind of see you know, what, that, uh, what we could then determine about cost-effectiveness. We could see the measurable effects uh, and there are many from school feeding programs. We chose a school breakfast program that could give us effects on children's height and also on weight or BMI. So we could find a, a good measurable impact from uh, school breakfast programs. We then looked at the effects on stunting and obesity prevalence, sort of the important intermediate outcome of interest. And then to get to the economic impacts for stunting, we could take from the program's uh, impact of school feeding on years of education and therefore on income or labor earnings. And that is reasonably well established in the literature. We were fortunate to find some cross-country estimates of the impact of additional years of education on wages. And then for the obesity impacts, we looked at, as is common in this literature, the impact on obesity-related NCDs. And again, the, this literature usually uses the productivity impacts of NCDs um, and the costs of care for NCDs, the medical costs. So we looked at the benefits of school feeding or school breakfast specifically on productivity and on averted medical costs of obesity related NCDs. So that's in short, the, the, the steps that we took. Next slide, please. Where we got the evidence, and this is certainly um, was one of the challenges because we couldn't go to a well-known program that had double duty a well-known double duty program, if you will, a well-known program that had um, impacts on the double burden of malnutrition that was assessed as such. So we derived our impacts on stunting and BMI from two programs. Uh, one, a very well-designed program from Jamaica that was looking at height changes in children, second to fifth grade students. And for the obesity side, we looked at a program from the US that was measuring BMI change for obesity uh, prevention in children between grades one and 12. So as, as implied here, we had to take our effect sizes from different programs from 
both school breakfast programs, but from different places, different countries, different groups, not ideal by any means, but just to sort of, again, we we're looking for proof of concept here. Then what we did was we took those effect sizes and we simulated the impact of those effects on children in three countries for which we had stunting and obesity data. Again, a compromise here, we had to look at four to five year olds because we don't have stunting data for older children. So a different age group, um, not the older age children that would be in school normally, but we looked at uh, Guatemala, Indonesia, Nigeria, for whom we had stunting and obesity data. We had epi the epi distributions uh, of those impacts on children. And we simulated the impacts of the school breakfast program. And then we were able to obtain costs of the school breakfast program from a relatively recent multi-country study of school feeding program costs. Next slide, please. So we had two types of findings, again, just to sort of go back to, to what we started with. We wanted to assess existing models. We found that we couldn't come up with an existing model that would allow us to perfectly look at the impact, economic impacts of double burden. Um, as I mentioned, when uh, economic studies measure stunting uh, impacts, they generally are looking at GDP loss or benefit cost ratios of programs that are um, implemented to reduce stunting. However, when looking at obesity, economic studies are generally looking at cost of illness and productivity impacts from uh, reducing NCDs. So those two things don't go together very well. And we had to try to sort of nest them. So we definitely need some work on models. And then the other thing we wanted to do, of course, was the proof of concept, the idea that we could demonstrate cost effectiveness and a good return on investment. And we looked at the uh, effects and the costs from school breakfast programs in three different, against the, the population and epi context of three different countries. And we found a positive return on investment in all three of those countries. Again, simulated effects. Um, a little bit over half of the economic benefits were associated with reducing stunting and a little under half of the combined benefit was associated with reducing obesity among the school children. Next and last slide, please. So our conclusions essentially are that we need to have some better standardization of our definitions and of our, in particular, our outcomes that are measured in double duty uh, programs. Uh, we want a small number of outcomes that economists can grapple with and that we can associate with economic results. And we recommend that we take some of the economic tools that are available. We used the, the LIST tool, a well-known economic, a well-known um, undernutrition model and we um, we then did some cost benefit analysis on the obesity side but we'd really rather have a validated uh, economic tool uh, that can look at them together uh, to, to uh, measure the cost effectiveness of the double duty interventions and then apply that in a number of countries that have rich data from the the breadth of um, sectors and programs and platforms that Corinna has mentioned that can uh, implement double duty interventions. So with that, I'll stop and look forward to the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rachel. Uh, yes, we still have a lot to do in terms of developing, designing these double duty action and in terms of evaluating them and understanding their, their uh, efficiency in, in economic terms, for, for instance. 
So thank you again to all four presenters for very rich and enlightening presentations. Um, we will now move to hearing from three discussants. Uh, we have asked the discussants if they could comment on the implication of this new nutrition reality and of the Lancet series itself for their work and their experience with some of the challenges and, and opportunities to tackle multiple forms of malnutrition at the same time in their institution. We're traditionally working in silos uh, for those who work on undernutrition and, and overweight and obesity. And we now need to bring these two different, slightly different um, communities together. Um, so we have three uh, discussants and I will introduce them now and uh, they will just uh, present their, uh, their remarks uh, one after the other, and then we will move into the question and answers. Uh, so our first discussant is Dr. Victor Aguayo, who comes from UNICEF. We are very interested in hearing from his experience in, in UNICEF with tackling multiple forms of malnutrition. Dr. Aguayo is Associate Director and Global Chief of Nutrition Program Division at UNICEF. And then we have Dr. Simon Barquera, who is director of the Center for Research in Nutrition and Health at the National Institute of Public Health in Mexico. And finally, Abigail Perry, who is head of nutrition policy at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO, which used to be DFID of the UK um, government. So um, first I will give the screen to Victor. Thank you, Marie, and I hope you can hear me well. Let me check on that. You can hear me well, right? Yes. Thank you very much, Marie and colleagues. Um, in the next five minutes, I would like to share with you how this new nutrition reality is shaping nutrition programming at UNICEF. So first, in UNICEF, we are convinced that most of our policy and program actions at the country level must be double duty, and that includes in low-income countries. As Marie just mentioned, we cannot work in silos, and we have done that in the past uh, quite frequently. Uh, we cannot work in silos on the prevention of stunting versus the prevention of micronutrient deficiencies or the prevention of overweight and obesity. In most cases, as we heard from the presenters this morning, these triple burden are, uh, ha have drivers that are common, as are many of the policy and program responses to it. Thus, in UNICEF, we are moving away from single forms of malnutrition and single nutrition interventions. Very specifically, our nutrition strategy for the next 10 years focuses on one single thing, one single goal, which is to promote diets, services, and practices that prevent malnutrition in all its forms, in early childhood, in middle childhood, in adolescence. The second is that we need to acknowledge in UNICEF, the double duty actions need to be delivered through more than one system. The health system is not enough. Our programming in the past has over relied sometimes on the ability of the health system to improve nutritional outcomes for children and women. However, the evolving phase of child malnutrition in low and middle income countries has pushed us to recognize the central role of the food system. There is no doubt in my mind, there is no doubt in our minds that food systems are failing to provide millions of children with the healthy diets they need to prevent the double burden of malnutrition. But there is also no doubt in my mind that the health system, as well as the education and social protection systems can do much more and need to do much more to promote double duty diets, 
services and practices. My third point is that we need to become smarter at driving down the consumption of unhealthy foods by children and families. And this not only to prevent overweight and obesity, but also to prevent undernutrition, waste in stunting and micronutrient deficiencies. As Barry mentioned before, when babies in Nepal are getting a quarter of the calories they eat from junk food, we know that there is no time to waste. These unhealthy foods are driving, of course, overweight and obesity, but they are also driving stunting, wasting and micronutrient deficiencies. We see this happening in Nepal, but we see it also happening in India, in Ghana, in South Africa, in Indonesia, or in Bolivia, to mention but a few. And we need to get very serious about stopping marketing of junk food to children and their families. And I want to be very clear on this point. Such marketing strategies exploit children's vulnerabilities, violate children's rights, are pervasive, and need to stop. For our work at the country level shows that combining efforts to address undernutrition with those to address overweight is possible. As I said, our strategy for the next 10 years organizes our programming around four stages in the life cycle, early childhood, middle childhood, adolescence, and pregnancy, and not around different forms of malnutrition, as sometimes we did in the past, stunting, wasting, micronutrient deficiencies, overweight. At each stage of life, early childhood, middle childhood, adolescence, and pregnancy, we favor double or triple duty actions that promote healthy growth and development in children and adolescents. For example, protecting and supporting optimal breastfeeding practices, or in a made a reference to this before, and dietary diversity in infancy and early childhood are a cornerstone of our work to prevent child stunting, but also overweight and obesity. And this has allowed us to regain significant momentum for nutrition in Latin America and East Asia, regions that were almost done with the more severe forms of undernutrition, but have a double burden of both stunting and overweight. We're working in countries as diverse as Bolivia, Ecuador, Indonesia, Mexico, the Philippines, but also Ghana, South Africa, and Kenya to address all forms of malnutrition through double duty policies and programs. And my final point is that communicating about the need to address undernutrition and overweight and obesity in children sometimes can be challenging. UNICEF nutrition strategy is guided by the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which recognizes every child's right to nutrition. Malnutrition in all its forms, including overweight and obesity, is a violation of this right. However, for an agency like UNICEF, it is easy to communicate that undernutrition is an injustice to children that we need to end now. And sometimes it is more difficult for us to communicate that children who live with overweight or obesity did not choose to live this way, that they suffer huge personal costs to their health, school performance, self-confidence, and joy. In such situations, double duty thinking provides us not only with a useful framework for programming, but also with a useful framework for advocacy and communication. Because at the end of the day, malnutrition is poor nutrition in all its forms. So with that, I would like to hand over the screen, as Marie said before, to my colleague, my friend, Simon Barquera from the Instituto Nacional de Salud Pública in Mexico for his remarks. Over to you, Simon. Thank you, Victor, and thank you, Marie, and to the IFPRI for the invitation to this seminar on the new nutrition reality and to give a perspective of 
of my experience in Mexico. Uh, first, let me start by mentioning that Latin America is one of the most unequal regions in the world with an important amount of population under the line of poverty. In the last four decades, we have observed how obesity and chronic disease have increased and become the main public health problem. As Barry mentioned, economic development, free trade and globalization, among other factors, transformed the food system, which when paired with a lack of adequate governance, caused a rapid epidemiologic transition. Currently, Argentina, Chile and Mexico are among the highest consumers of soft drinks in the world. And Latin America, many Latin American countries obtain more than 25% of their caloric intake from ultra processed foods. In the case of Mexico, it is close to 30%. The consequences are alarming. For instance, in Mexico, 80% of all deaths are due to non-communicable chronic diseases. 40,000 deaths are attributable each year to sugary beverage consumption, and diabetes mortality has gone from less than 20,000 in 1980 to more than 100,000 deaths per year today. In the other hand, undernutrition has uh, been a significant and ongoing challenge for which we have implemented a number of national efforts with positive but modest results. Chronic undernutrition decreased from 30 to 14% in 20 years, but we have not seen further progress in the last six years. And although breastfeeding rates doubled uh, during the last six years, we are still below the regional average and far below countries like Peru, Bolivia, and Uruguay. Uh, the current COVID-19 pandemic has added yet another layer of complexity for the region uh, to deal with, resulting in economic crises that have increased food insecurity and poverty. In my opinion, we are facing a critical challenge to effectively implement necessarily double duty actions to overcome malnutrition due to government unclear priorities and, and resource allocation. In, in one hand, the new administration in Mexico is very sensitive to industry interference in health policies and has readily provided support for front of pack warning levels, regulation for marketing to children, healthy nutrition at schools and promotion of locally produced sustainable foods. This type of political will generates a vital window of opportunity that we need to be able to capitalize. The impact of these measures will be far reaching. For instance, only a few weeks after the implementation of the warning levels, Hundreds of products have been reformulated to decrease their sugar, fat, and salt content. In addition, all government food aid is now replacing products that were delivered to vulnerable communities to avoid giving them products that contained warning labels, a result that will benefit millions of vulnerable children that receive this benefit. However, on the other hand, the Mexican government also shut down most of the comprehensive national programs from the past administration aimed at improved nutrition of the poorest, such as ESEAN, a pioneer program that documented important positive results to combat the double burden of malnutrition, and that was a response to the uh, transfers that uh, the program of transfer that Corina just mentioned in Mexico. Uh, to make things worse the, with the pandemic, no alternative to these programs has been implemented or designed yet, and millions of Mexicans are becoming food insecure. Uh, addressing these concerns, the INSP, together with UNICEF, WHO, and other agencies, developed a position urging the Mexican government to implement a plan to adopt a comprehensive strategy focusing on the first 1,000 days of life 
and uh, to allocate funding to protect the infant population from the most vulnerable locations in the country. We expect to have a positive result and implement a, a programs and, and try to sustain them for the uh, remaining four years of this administration. An additional challenge what I, um, that I want to mention to conclude is the importance of developing sound program evaluations, dissemination, and interaction with global agencies and academia to ensure continuity of successful efforts and to maintain dialogues with similar Latin American countries to support public health policies and reinforce the capacity of the communities of practice in the region to effectively and sustainable tackle malnutrition in all of its forms. And with this, I am um, giving the floor to Dr. Abigail Perry. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to uh, IFPRI for organizing a uh, session on such an important topic. Uh, just before I give some reflections from the perspective of a development donor, I just want to note that these are my personal uh, reflections rather than reflecting any formal position of the UK government. Um, so the first thing I want to um, uh, emphasize when it comes to the question of the implications or relevance for this is that there are basically two ways that development government donors are likely to engage on a topic like this. The first is the most obvious one, which is how we uh, spend our money. But I also want to touch on the question of how we engage in global policy processes, because it also has uh, real relevance and some potential uh, opportunities also. So when it comes first to the question of how we spend aid money, I think it's important to emphasize that the reality is that talking about overweight and obesity and how we're using overseas development assistance is still quite a sensitive topic. And that's particularly the case in the context of difficult economic uh, circumstances, which many countries are facing uh, given the, uh, what's happening with uh, COVID-19. Um, it's clear that the general public and politicians uh, really understand the challenge of malnutrition as being about undernutrition and that there's a good degree of comfort in using aid money, which is fundamentally taxpayers' money, in support of action on this. So in this respect, the focus on really emphasising double duty action, so the things we can do that are important for both components, is clearly very important. Um, it's sort of a way of being able to hide the action that we can take to deal with overweight and obesity um, through the, the way that we're investing in, in uh, undernutrition itself. Um, and I really welcome the fact that uh, uh, Victor from UNICEF in particular uh, mentioned the type of shift that UNICEF is taking to better um, integrate double duty actions into the work that UNICEF is doing. Because what we find as a development donor is that we can't move that much faster than our partners will move. So it's really critical for us that actors like UNICEF, but probably more fundamentally our partner governments, are also looking at integrating and adopting these double duty actions um, to the best effect possible. Um, I then want to pick up the, the points that have been raised by a number of uh, colleagues who've spoken today about the opportunities about reshaping areas such as social protection and particularly focusing on the question of improving access to nutritious diets. I really, don't, I really can't un underestimate just how much of a challenge it is to try and get that shift happening it's clear that there are so many more urgent priorities that these different sectors are still really thinking about. So be it around acute food insecurity, be it around jobs, which for all countries is really key in the context of economic downturn, but also increasingly around climate and environment. 
We're still not getting there to uh, ensure that this argument around the importance of nutrition generally and their undernutrition, not just overweight and obesity is adequately reflected. So then just want to come to the second area I, I uh, flagged about our role in global policy uh, and the kind of big processes that can influence the way in which nutrition is understood and addressed more broadly. What we see, and this perhaps is a reflection of our context, is that there is still a very clear divide in terms of policy, dialogue and target populations when it comes to discussions about overweight and obesity and when it comes to discussions about undernutrition. So when you look at processes such as the G20, which do have an impact on the way that countries progress around these uh, issues, there is a real divide uh, with ministries of health or departments of health typically leading on any discussion on overweight and obesity. And then uh, people like myself leading on discussions around undernutrition. So it's really key that we are making sure that our colleagues who tend to work more on overweight and obesity are bringing in some of these really key points about double duty actions and looking at how they, through the way that they think about overweight and obesity, are also promoting the same message. And that then comes to a kind of key action that I think has relevance um, when it comes to the question of joining up the divide across the overweight and obesity communities and the undernutrition communities, but also looking at how to make better use of instruments such as social protection, agriculture and so on in support of this agenda. I think we, we still need um, a really solid policy narrative that builds rather than uh, reinforces the divide um, that we see between these different communities and that also can persuade others to act differently. We've got all the ingredients for this and the, the papers that have been set out today uh, provide uh, basically what we need, but we now need to get that out and understood by those who would think that undernutrition or overweight and obesity or even nutrition at all is nothing to do with them. Uh, and we have a really important opportunity through the Food Systems Summit, uh, but we're going to need to really go in with a very clear argument as to why our agenda is important and should be a priority. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for our three discussions. It's really interesting to hear their views. Uh, we are navigating a rather new area here and, and it's important for us to all get some reactions and, uh, and further inputs into the thinking. We can now move into our question and answer session. So again, we're inviting everyone to submit questions in the chat. We have, I just counted, we have so many speakers, feel free to ask questions to any one of them. Um, and, uh, and I will start with, there is one question that I think I will answer myself, uh, which has been uh, posed by, by a couple of people, which is what happened to the triple burden of malnutrition. Um, so this is really a question of terminology. Uh, we have had um, this, this, as usual in nutrition, we've had this confusion sometimes about the terminology that different people use to talk about uh, different issues. Um, but in this case, I think when people use triple burden of malnutrition, they meant uh, the combination of uh, child underweight or maternal underweight and, 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 uh, and stunting wasting, maternal low BMI and things like that. 
the second one being micronutrient deficiencies and the third one being overweight and obesity. And of course, none of those classifications are necessarily a good classification. Double duty is not uh, exact either because especially from what we've heard today of how all those forms of malnutrition are interrelated, um, double or triple is, is inaccurate. We often talk about malnutrition in all its forms now, which uh, personally I prefer, but uh, it's certainly more catchy to talk about the double burden of malnutrition, meaning the, uh, the somewhat from, from the undernutrition to the overnutrition side undernutrition is a, a case of deficiency all, all of the undernutrition types be it micronutrient deficiency or or, uh, or wasting or stunting are deficiencies and then overweight and obesity sometimes we say is excess but it's not just a, a excess it's imbalanced diets so overall i would ask people to not worry about the terminology and i've actually never liked the triple uh burden uh and i I don't know how I feel about the double burden, but I think what we need to recognize we're talking about malnutrition in all its forms. So I will stop here on this question. Um, now, I will start with a question to Barry from Ranjoy Gupta, research scholar in India. Um, the question is, what is the contribution of traditional food culture in sustainable development and should policy planning include specific indicators based on traditional local food culture? Um, I think they should, to, be, to try to come to the grips with that. We have a policy in, in Brazil that we're in the midst of evaluating where they took the national school feeding program and required in the past 30% of the food come from local small farmers. Uh, that's the kind of program that will impact farmers, use government resources to help with local food resources and do the kinds of things you're asking. This is a very difficult question because my agricultural hat as an agricultural economist tells me that all the global economic forces have moved away from traditional agriculture. We're losing our, our various crops like sorghum, millet, and others that are not the major wheat, rice uh, crops of Africa. We're losing many other traditional crops. And this is really going to be very difficult unless we have government programs that kind of push and promote in very effective ways. And I think the school feeding program, using the food to go to the local farmers is one way to do that. But that will not necessarily create us going back to local indigenous crops, such as the author, the, the questioner is raising. Because again, it's a question of taste that have been formed by the rapid onslaught of these newer crops. The rice coming into Africa is just an example. The wheat coming in, uh, the shifts are going on away from the coarse grains and many other products. And even the biggest fear I have is that going away from legumes or pulses in India and elsewhere, it's really very serious and we need to find ways to use government resources against it. 
but the global food system is fighting against that in very many ways. The funding is increasing going to larger farmers, not small farmers. So we need to create new policies that will both improve nutrition, uh, like school feeding, but also go to these local farmers. But to protect indigenous original crops is gonna be very difficult without very localized kind of planning and organization. Thank you. thank you. Yes, thank you, Barry. Um, now I have a couple of questions for Jonathan. One from uh, Sarah. Uh, in Dr. Wells' research, is there a correlation between race, overweight, and childbirth? And if so, is the correlation solely, solely in um, higher middle income countries? I'm sorry, could you repeat that question, please? Yeah. Is there a correlation between race, overweight, and childbirth? Uh, and, and I don't know if it's meaning childbirth weight or childbirth conditions. <laughs> and if so, is the correlation solely in higher and middle income countries? Um, I think that's a very difficult question to answer because uh, I think we're, we're really recognizing this year more than any other that um, what we mean by race is a social construct rather than something uh, biological. So. Um, we need to remember that when we use that term, we're, we're referring to a combination of living conditions and constraints, um, uh, the biological effects of discrimination uh, over and above any issue of ethnic ancestry. So I think I actually just can't answer that question. <laughs> yes, um, I understand. Another question for you, Sanjita from International Medical University in Malaysia. Uh, has a question, could maternal anemia through propagation of low birth weight also lead to adult obesity in the child? So the issue of whether undernutrition in early life um, actually is in some way causative of later overweight has attracted a lot of in interest. And I think the simple answer is it depends. Um, we can find many cohorts where if we follow up children who were stunted or wasted in early life, they're still thin in later life. There's no guarantee that undernutrition is going to make people overweight. When we measured uh, children in Nepal at eight years who had been stunted at two years, those stunted children at eight years had the lowest levels of body fat. So it's really not inevitable that early undernutrition drives later overweight. I think what we can say is that quite often in certain settings, underweight can predispose to catch up growth and catch-up growth can affect the distribution of fat. And we often find high levels of central body fat, which is particularly harmful for health and harmful for chronic disease risk amongst uh, individuals who were previously undernourished. So I think there's an interaction there between early undernutrition and whether or not catch-up weight gain occurred. And really that the strongest effect is probably on fat distribution rather than just the development or not of overweight. Thank you, Jonathan. I think also maybe if, if I may add that uh, it also probably depends on the envi food environment where those children are growing in and where they are at adulthood. If, if the environment is obesogenic, these children probably have a greater um, risk of, of developing overweight and obesity. Um, Corinna. Uh, Plabon Sarkar is asking if government policies addressing the double burden of malnutrition are absent, 
what adaptations can be made for interventions to bring the desired impact? Uh, thanks for that question. Y yes, the, um, uh, in the absence of government policy, there's plenty that can be done at the level of intervention delivered by uh, programs on the ground. Uh, so, for example, um, if um, delivering a, um, a health a program through the, the health system, um, the, the trick is to ask, uh, that is focused on undernutrition, uh, the trick is to ask what can this program do which can reduce the risk of obesity. So, for example, if counselling is given to um, uh, pregnant women and women with young children or caregivers, and that counselling focuses just on what is needed uh, for minimum nutrients. It could also focus on reducing, uh, on counselling on the fact that there are many nutrient poor energy dense snacks out there which aren't going to benefit their children's growth and development at all. So those simple changes can be made just adding in to existing interventions on the ground. I give just one example, but uh, the first action we recommend is, is really to to do a review of all the interventions that are taking place. Um, if you work for an organization, for example, to review the actions you're taking and ask yourself the question, are any of these interventions amenable to also reducing the risk of, of obesity? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Corinna. Other question, Omo to Yole Ambali. Uh, malnutrition correlates, no, those are, sorry. Um, did I just ask that question? Malnutrition correlates with poverty. These are predominant. Okay, sorry. So uh, malnutrition correlates with poverty. These are predominant problems affecting many people globally. What is the best way to tackle the double burden of malnutrition among vulnerable populations? Is that for me, Marie? Yes. Uh, well, uh, one of the actions that we recommend is through social safety net programs. Of course, there are many different types of social safety net programs, including the conditional cash transfers, school feeding programs, as well as programs which are directly um, about food, uh, forms of food subsidy, for example. And so what's vital is that these programs are delivered in order to tackle poverty. Um, among these groups. They are vital and shown to be effective if they're well designed. So that they're designed to tackle poverty, but that they're also designed in order to ensure that they are focused on delivering nutrition, whether that be through education, through the foods which are made um, available um, in those programs, and indeed to make sure that the food environments and food systems in which those programs are delivered to tackle poverty are healthy, nutritious food environments, which means that the, the, the foods that people can afford are, um, are nutritious and that those foods will be the ones that people spend uh, the money that they have that has been made available through the so social safety net uh, program should it, involve, um, should it involve cash. So a combination of, of, of addressing poverty and addressing malnutrition in all its forms through the same program, um, I think could be really quite transformative given the amount of social safety net programs around the world and how few of them currently focus on uh, both sides of the double burden. Thank you, Corinna. Um, just uh, one or two more. <laughs> um, what about triple? So this is a question from Yves Martin Prevel from IRD in France. 
What about the triple duty actions, meaning accounting for environmental impact as proposed by WHO a few years back? And then someone else, Adrien Gosselin from Paris Servi, is asking uh, about the global syndemic. So if you could uh, bring us back to uh, other issues related to terminology and concepts so that we, um, we connect them. Sure, so this global syndemic refers to the combination of obesity and nutrition, as well as climate change as three of the huge problems of our, our times. And triple duty actions refers to the idea that there are actions that can tackle both obesity and undernutrition as for double duty, but with the third being added in that they can also tackle climate change. This is very challenging. It's taking on another whole topic, but it's clearly absolutely vital. And of course, addressing climate change is important for nutrition because there won't be any food on a, on a dead planet. So uh, clearly vital over the longer, over the longer term. So the um, triple duty actions are all about saying, uh, when we're focusing on the food side, for example, about saying, well, if we're going to um, increase the healthiness and nutritiousness of food uh, for people and through those particular actions, where does that food come from? Does it come from a sustainable production system? So what the triple duty agenda does is bring in the entire uh, food system into the equation, which of course is being dealt with by the UN Food Systems Summit. And it is quite challenging to identify those actions, but the Global Syndemic Report does do that and does name and, and, um, and specify some, some um, actions, generally speaking, which can have that impact. But there are lots of trade-offs involved and lots of uh, complexity involved in that. But certainly what's important is, is that that becomes part of the conversation so we can start thinking through some of those trade-offs and synergies. Thank you so much. Um, now I have a question for Victor uh, from Rajul Pandialors. How do you envision bringing the business community on board in new and different ways to drive down consumption of unhealthy food? Hmm. <laughs> um, so let me start by saying that I'm a firm believer that um, we will not be able to address the challenge of malnutrition ahead without effective engagement with the private sector and uh, within that with the food and beverage industry. So I think that that needs to be a no-brainer to all of us. More and more families, more and more children will depend on the practice of the private sector and the food and beverage industry, marketing practices and the quality of the products and foods they produce. So we in UNICEF need to um, learn to be smarter in engaging with the private sector and the food and beverage industry. Engagement in my mind does not mean partnership. I'm not thinking about partnering with the private sector or the food and beverage industry, although sometimes that could be relevant. But I'm thinking about engaging effectively uh, with the public sector and the private sector so that the products, the practices and the foods produced by the private sector are conducive to healthy growth in uh, children. I think we need to do this uh, more effectively in the next 10 years and that is a key paradigm shift um, and strategic shift in our strategy for the next 10 years is effective engagement with the private sector and the food and beverage industry. 
effective engagement as we do in Mexico with Simon and many other colleagues with the public sector as well, uh, because it is about public policies guiding how the private sector needs to uh, behave and execute their actions. Thank you, Victor. Um, a question to Barry from Tai Li. Can I first add a comment on Victor's question? Sure. Point? Okay, so I've had experience working in uh, now a couple dozen countries working to try to work on healthy food regulations that include things like fiscal policy, uh, front of the package labeling. And for the countries that have instituted these, we have found no employment changes on the food sector and no major losses of production. They have in turn just produced healthier products. But in every country, I found the food industry truly fights against any regulation or any taxes, despite the fact they can adjust and they can produce healthier food. So we face a complex issue that Victor knows very well and how to get them to work with us on healthy food policies instead of trying to fight everything, even when they have the technology to create healthier food. And that's just my comment there. Now we can go to your question, Marie. Going back to your question, what about the shift from stage four to five of the nutrition transition model? Is it necessary for the fight against the, the double burden of malnutrition and the role of income? Um, Yes, I think that's correct. I truly feel that to move toward a healthier eating society, first, we're going to have to regulate our food supply to create the incentives for the industry to create healthier food. We're going to have to use fiscal policy to allow and use some of those resources to help the poor have the income to buy healthier food either through an array of different programs from food stamps to food programs to uh, subsidies on healthier food. We're going to have to use it as an incentive to change the food system and to have agriculture create the healthier foods. So uh, that certainly has to be a major part of this. At the same time, we have countries that are very low income and we have populations that are very poor and can barely survive, let alone think about buying healthier food. And it is going to take a while to fight against those issues and to figure out and get countries to use the kind of fiscal policy and other things to help the truly poor that are going to become the major reservoir for the double burden over the next decades. Thank you, Barry. Um, now I'd like to ask a question that I find uh, is, is a broad question and I'd like to hear from as many of the, of the speakers and discussants on your, your take on it. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that question from Lena. How would you see that the Food Systems Summit can help address the double burden of malnutrition? Any suggestions for game changers to address it? 
So we could go in the order of the speakers, Barry, if you want to, to start, and then we'll, we'll see who, whoever wants to answer this question from their perspective. Um, we'll just go through, starting with you, Barry. Can you uh, repeat the question, Marie? Yes, how would you see that the Food Systems Summit can help address the double burden of malnutrition? Uh, any suggestions for game changers to address it? You know, there has been for track one, for example, a call for game changers to be proposed for uh, improving diets and, and nutrition and health through uh, food systems. So I think it's a broad question, but uh, a good one in terms of what can we propose in terms of a game changer, changer to, um, uh, to the food system summit uh, in order to address the double burden of malnutrition? This is very complex because I see the major problem emerging over the next decades is the increasing role of, of sales and marketing of, of ultra processed foods. And until we find a way to regulate those, we aren't gonna find a way to really increase the consumption of truly healthy diets across the globe. This is particularly true in low and middle income countries that we're focused on. There is where the major markets are and where the major push on marketing and sales of these foods exists. So I think the game changer has to be pushing for clear regulations that global food companies can accept that will truly help to shift our diets away and then once we get rid of some of the least healthy elements of the diet and we get rid of some of the marketing of these, hopefully there'll be space for us to promote the truly healthier foods that we need um, in, across the globe. And the food summit today is truly not going in that direction. It's very much industry oriented and not allowing in the voices of not NGOs and others want to push for these kinds of changes. Thank you, Barry. Um, maybe we move to Corinna. Would you like to answer this question? Yes, sorry. Um, yes, uh, so I think the most important aspect of the Food Systems Summit with regard to the double burden of malnutrition is for the world to see that the food system can be a solution to the double burden of malnutrition and that there's lots of opportunities in the food system to make change. And at this point, I think for many people working in nutrition, they may not be looking to the food system for solutions. They may be looking to the health system uh, or the social security system or other systems, but to have people look more to the food system as a place to find solutions, because there are, um, there are many. In, a, in another project I'm working on, we've just defined a list of 42 actions that can be taken in the food system, which collectively um, can work to address the double burden of malnutrition, for example. So my, um, the role of that summit is to have the global community who works on nutrition look more to the food system to find solutions to the double burden of malnutrition. Thank you, Corinna. Let me jump to maybe Francesco. Yeah, thanks, um, Marie. Well, uh, Food System Summit is an opportunity to create a broader community and to integrate agendas uh, uh, on uh, uh, health and the environment. 
So uh, I think the opportunity is to look at the synergies and uh, the opportunity is to look at new actors which can uh, um, contribute uh, with the policies and investments. We're looking, I think the, the Food System Summit is, is meant to identify solutions and to identify actors that can commit on, on those solutions without uh, hiding the contradictions that are there, uh, without hiding the, um, uh, the different uh, objectives that different actors uh, uh, may have. Thank you, Francesco. Um, how about Abigail? Would you like to comment on the Food Summit, Food System Summit? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Marie. Um, I mean, clearly it is a really important opportunity um, and I agree with the uh, comments that have been raised about uh, making sure that we're looking to the Food System Summit as that opportunity. Um, but I do think in the run up to it, we need to really think quite seriously about the point I made earlier, which is what is the message we're going into that with as a nutrition community? Um, I think that the we see the food systems from our food system from our perspective but the food system delivers so many other things which as i said are arguably of greater priority right now to many of the actors that we are uh, trying to influence and trying to engage and who will need to make shifts so again food system as it relates to jobs noting uh, uh barry popkins earlier comment about jobs so again we need to challenge some of those assumptions food systems as it relates to climate and environment objectives it's a big year with COP26 also, so there's a lot of focus on the climate agenda. Um, so it's a tough, it's a tough environment. It's a tough one for us to get this in there. And we know that we've got some very tough points of resistance, uh, particularly around the private sector piece, which is not insurmountable. But again, that point about ensuring that there's a focus on the regulatory space is also going to be really key. But to really get us to the Food System Summit with a strong centrality to, to this point about healthy diets. Um, we're going to need to get our act together in terms of the way we put our message forward. Thank you. And uh, Victor? Yes. Um, I really hope that the game changer is going to be that the Food System Summit not be a summit of technical people talking to technical people and trying to convince each other or to reassure each other. To me, the, the marker of a success of the Food System Summit is that the Food System Summit contribute to ignite a global conversation around healthy diets uh, for healthy growth for all children and for all people. Um, how do we achieve that? Uh, I think it is going to be extremely important that this the food system summit contribute to create a movement as the climate summit contributed to that we break out out of that chamber and
Hello, my computer froze or somebody's computer froze. I could not hear all of the comments. I think it must have been Victor's. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was hoping it wasn't mine. Um, Victor has actually disappeared, I think, yes. So um, we have, we're actually right on time for the last uh, little bit of our, uh, our seminar today. Uh, and I'd like to introduce our final speaker who is, um, our, who is going to provide us with closing remarks, uh, Dr. Mira Shekhar, uh, who is Global Lead Nutrition, Health and Population at the World Bank. Uh, and so Mira, if you could uh, give us the wise words, concluding remarks, thank you. Thank you, Marie. Uh, and, and thank you to IFPRI and uh, everybody else um, who's hosted this very, very interesting session. Uh, it's been fascinating to listen to everybody and um, learn uh, lots of new things. Um, in my concluding remarks, I'm not going to try and summarize everything that has been said. I think we all agree that the double burden is a reality in most of our countries that we are working in. And the fact that the burden is growing, particularly on the obesity side, is, is really concerning for all of us. Um, and and um, those of you who have had a chance to see the World Bank's report on obesity that we released um, in February this year, and I think Katala can, can share the link in, in the chat box, um, you, you will see that um, we from the bank side are on a very similar uh, position, in a very similar position, um, because that report highlights why obesity is important, not just for health reasons, but also for economic reasons. And countries are experiencing huge productivity losses linked to obesity. So in the past, while we advocated for uh, productivity losses linked to stunting, now we're saying it's also obesity. So uh, clearly we're all on the same page as far as that is concerned. What I really want to focus on is um, how are we going to get this message out there? And Victor uh, uh, emphasized that a little bit uh, more. Um, how are we going to get it out to the countries and how are we going to make sure that these actions Double uh, duty actions, um, as well as triple duty actions that are really important from a climate point of view, are actually implemented at scale. That is absolutely critical. Otherwise, we keep talking it in the academic world, but it never gets translated into action. And that, I think, is, is one of nutrition's uh, many failings, that we, we do a lot of research, but we don't take it out um, uh, uh, to scale it up in terms of action. So in, in the bank team, we are starting within the World Bank, we are starting to, to um, socialize these ideas with our regional teams and then with each of our country teams. And it's a lot of heavy lifting. We've also included it in the new uh, health nutrition population strategy at the World Bank. Um, but really I think most important is that we get this message out well beyond all of the technical folks who are engaged and involved in these discussions to put uh, the attention of global leaders. 
And as several of the presentations have highlighted, political will is absolutely critical to make this happen. And this will not happen unless we can have national leaders on board. And, and um, Simon referred to that, how, how in Mexico that happened because national leaders were on board. Chile has a similar story to tell as well. And so getting national leaders on board is, is a really hard thing to make happen because they are so uh, overwhelmed with messages from many sources. So um, it, it, it's something for which we need to have a very clear strategy. And I think no one summit, which whatever it is, whether the food system summit or the NPG summit, will be able to make that happen. So let's develop a strategy on how we take this message well beyond um, the technical eco-chambers. And the second thing I would say is for acting at scale, um, we've heard the message, we need to redesign, 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 redesign our social safety net programs, redesign our education, our school nutrition programs, our poverty reduction programs, but uh, and certainly food systems. But as we work on redesigning these, it's really important that we do not undermine the undernutrition programs. It's taken us 20 years of concerted effort to get undernutrition on the agenda of, of global leaders. Um, we don't want to undermine that. We need to do this in a very nuanced way so that we can um, we can scale up these double duty actions. And in the case of um, uh, food systems, we've had a lot of discussion about this right now um, over the last hour or two, but um, I must say, uh, if we think that somehow the private sector will realign itself around health outcomes instead of profit, I think we are, we are dreaming or we are smoking something fun. <laughs> Um, a regulation will be key, and Barry spoke to that quite extensively, but it's also clear um, that um, this is not going to be a, a problem that we can solve in the short term. This will be a long battle. We need to be in it for the long haul. And rigorous program evaluations, I'm not sure who mentioned that, but uh, I think maybe Simon did. Uh, that will be key to build the evidence base because convincing countries to do more, they need, um, they need evidence. Uh, from the World Bank's point of view, I don't want to end, end on a negative note, but just to say um, the Human Capital Project and the Human Capital Index actually uh, offers an, a good entry point. There are 78 countries that are part of the HCP, the Human Capital Project. And one of the indicators in there is stunting, and the other indicator is adult survival rates. My, my plea to the research community is if we can do a little bit more to quantify how um, obesity, how much obesity contributes to adult survival rates, either directly or through non-communicable diseases, then we can convince both countries and our own World Bank teams to do that. And we have instruments such as development policy operations that can incentivize policy changes. Um, and we can maximize that if we have the ability to do that. Lastly, um, on the obesity COVID links, um, Barry uh, uh, and others worked with our Saudi Arabia team to do this really very helpful meta-analysis that showed that 
um, obese individuals are nearly 50% more likely to die if they contract COVID. Um, so both at a physiological level, but also at the level of fiscal policies, we can we don't want to waste this epidemic, uh, this pandemic, this crisis that we have. We should use this as an opportunity to scale up um, uh, fiscal policies in particular, because this is a time when national economies in both the developed world as well as the developing world are under severe stress. So through fiscal policies, if we can increase the tax taxes that countries collect, that will improve their fiscal space as well. So let's try and do what we can, but clearly um, action at scale is absolutely critical. Thank you again very much. Thank you, Mira. We, uh, we really appreciate your, your uh, final concluding words. Uh, I just want to uh, everyone to join me in thanking all of the speakers. I think it was a fantastic uh, seminar, if I may say so. Um, and I just want to mention that uh, we also have been, so several of us have been working on helping to prepare a consultation that will start on, on uh, the third and we'll have three mornings of sessions uh, specifically dedicated to trying to iron out more concretely what we are talking about with double duty actions and, and start building the, um, the evidence of, of um, at least the interest in implementing these kinds of interventions. And then as Mira said, evaluating them and, and uh, building the body of evidence. Uh, the organizers of, of this, um, uh, consultation are uh, the Global Financing Facility at the World Bank, World Health Organization, and IFPRI. So again, thank you to all of the speakers and thanks for listening in. I declare the meeting closed.